0: Please turn with me back to Philippians chapter 1, where we begin our service today. If you are uh, visiting with us today, we are taking really the summer and maybe a little bit of the fall to to work through the book of Philippians. And if you remember, uh, Paul has really been detoured. He expected to be out doing missionary work, and instead he is under house arrest in Rome, chained to a Roman soldier. In fact, many Roman soldiers that alternate throughout the day in these shifts, and you would think Paul would be quite disappointed. This is not where he planned to be. There's nothing fun from a human standpoint for Paul's circumstances, and yet he writes to the Philippians, who are also under threat of persecution and beginning to experience persecution. He writes to them to encourage them in the midst of all these uh, troubles that they are in, And so I'm going to reread today's passage. This is 127 through 2-4. And then as we go, I'll probably be reading and rereading verses repeatedly just to sort of help us to see them with greater clarity, I hope. So Philippians 127 through 2-4. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay, so let me just remind us again. In verses 12 to 18, Paul was talking about what I called his joyful present experience, right? He's talking about preaching the gospel to his guards, how the gospel's been spreading amongst the the, the praetorium, the Roman guards, and even people in Caesar's household are becoming believers, which I think gave Paul a certain kind of delight, right? Caesar's holding him under arrest, and he's like, I'm just going to convert the people in your house. <laughs> so he's, people are being converted right under Caesar's nose, and Paul says, even the people who are, n- even professing Christians who, who are jealous of me and are preaching the gospel to make me really be more upset in jail, in, in his house arrest, he says, I'm even rejoicing that they're preaching the gospel because Jesus is being preached, Then in verses 19 to 26, he talks about his joyful future, right? So he's told you what's going on right now. He's under house arrest. And what's in the immediate future? He's going to go stand before Caesar, Nero, and his elites. And he's either going to be executed for no good reason, or he's going to be set free to do more missionary work. And he says, man, this is a... Which one would I prefer execution to go be with Jesus that's way better than this life, that sounds amazing, or I get set free to continue ministry for Jesus. Well, either way, the gospel wins. Either way, Jesus is glorified. I can't even tell which would be better, getting my head lopped off or setting, being set free. These are, this is a win-win. And Paul is modeling for us the kind of insane gospel freedom that comes when we really sink our roots into, the, into Jesus. When we sink our roots into Jesus, nothing can go wrong even when everything goes wrong. Think about the freedom. So Paul's, you know, the soldier is chained to Paul, saying, Paul, you keep preaching the gospel, we might beat you up some more. Paul's like, my sufferings are the fellowship of, if if I suffer, it's the fellowship with Christ's sufferings. I will know Christ better if you beat me. Like, okay, Paul, then we won't beat you. We'll let you just keep doing your thing. Well, then I'll convert all the guards. Uh, Paul, we're going to let you go free. Then I'm going to plant a church in every major city in the entire Roman Empire, from Jerusalem to Spain. Uh, Paul, we're going to kill you. That would be the best of all. I get to go be with the Lord. This is the one I'm living for. I haven't been able to see Him. You would make my day. You sever my head, and I. next thing I see, I look up, and I see Jesus in, the, in person, right there, His resurrected self in heaven. And if we have gospel priorities... Nothing can stand in our way when everything stands in our way. That is a different way to live. And and that's what today is going to be about because Paul talks about his present struggle. And he says, listen, if I live, it's Christ. If I die, it's even better. It's more of Christ. So I'm I'm happy with whatever happens, but I think the Lord is going to let me go. And I think I'm going to return to you and encourage you in the faith. I think that's what's going to happen. And now he shifts focus again. So instead of talking about his current circumstances or his future circumstances, he now turns and starts directly asking the Philippians to do some things. And uh, verse 27 is really the first command in the book. And it's also, I think, the central thesis statement of the whole book of Philippians. The first half of verse 27 is the central statement of Philippians. If you want to understand this book, this statement we should just memorize. And he's been modeling this statement up until now. Here it is. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's Philippians in one sentence. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does that mean? Some of you know this. In fact, if you have an ESV, there's a footnote here. The Greek for that verse is actually a little bit more, there's a little more there than you might see in English. Most English translations don't include this because it sounds awkward, but a literal rendering of the verse is this, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, I'm going to talk about a Greek word, don't fall asleep. You ready? Okay, the Greek word that he uses here to behave as citizens is the word polituomai. Okay, polituomai. Now, do you hear an English word there, polituomai? It's where we get a lot of words, actually, but the word politics comes from this word, the word metropolitan, uh, Minneapolis. Okay, the, the, the word polis is the root word. It's the Greek word for city, and uh, this word polituomai means to behave as a citizen worthy of. Okay, now, you say, what, what, what does that mean? If you've read Paul's letters, he doesn't use this word very often. He really, really, Paul in his letters, he only uses this word in Philippians twice. When he's talking to the Ephesians, he uses a different word. He'll say something like this, walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have received, Ephesians 4.1. Walk in a manner worthy, or walk, in a, a, walk as in live a life of love. But the word walk, I think he uses 30 or more times in his letters. This is a rare word, and commentators say, why? Why use it here with the Philippians and not with some of the others? Well, uh, let me just read you a couple quotes here. One commentator says this, Roman colonies were little bits of Rome planted throughout the world, where the citizens never forgot that they were Romans. Roman colonies were little bits of Rome planted throughout the world, where citizens never forgot they were Romans. Well, the city of Philippi was a city that was very proud. If you look at their history, they were very proud of their Roman heritage. The fact that they were, if you were born there, you would very frequently be a, an actual Roman citizen, which would be a very expensive thing to purchase. And uh, there was a lot of pride in that. So, here's another quote from a commentator. As Philippi was a colony of Rome in Macedonia, so the church was a colony of heaven in Philippi. Listen to this very carefully. As Philippi was a colony of Rome in Macedonia, which by the way was hundreds of miles away from the city of Rome, but they were representing Rome while hundreds of miles away, you getting this? Right? So, that the same Roman culture, same language, there was an emphasis in Latin, all these different things. It looked like you were in Rome, in a sense, when you were in Philippi. It, it reflected the homeland. So, as Philippi was a colony of Rome and Macedonia, so the church was a colony of heaven in Philippi, whose members were to live as its citizens in Philippi. Look over at chapter 3 real quick with me, and look at this verse. Look at 19... And 20. Speaking again of the enemies of the cross in 319, he says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship, almost the exact same word in Greek, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power of that enables him to subject all things to himself. So do you see where I'm getting the idea that the citizenship word is linked to heaven? Paul says, you are citizens of heaven living on earth. In fact, just to kind of summarize this sermon in one sentence, uh, the church is to live together as citizens of heaven during our brief time on earth. The church is to live together as citizens of heaven during our brief time on the earth. So, Paul is, he knows about their Roman pride, and he says, let's talk about our heavenly exaltation in Jesus. Heaven seems a long way away, and we're not there right now. We've never, now Paul had had a vision, right, of the third heaven, but most had not. And so, Paul says, listen, even though you are not home right now with the Lord, we are citizens of heaven, and let us have the priorities of heaven. And What shapes the priorities of heaven? What's the constitution of heaven? It's the gospel of Jesus, right? The the gospel is the constitution. If you want to know how things work in heaven, take a long, hard look at the gospel of Jesus. And that tells you how citizens of heaven should behave. And so Paul says, Rejoice in who you are in Jesus. Know that your life is hidden with Christ. Set your mind on things above. Fixate on heavenly realities and gospel truths. And then let that affect the way the church is the church in whatever city you're in. So in Athens, Georgia, our little church here, we should be an alternate city within the city. You see where I'm getting this from? We should be a different culture within the culture. We should have different priorities than the priorities without. We should have different loves, longings, desires, and fears, and hopes, and dreams than, than those without. And when, when unbelievers who we love, who we desire to come to know Jesus, who we, who we care about tremendously, and as you model, by the way, you love unbelieving loved ones, and co-workers, and friends, and strangers. When, when unbelievers see the way we relate to each other, the, the, hopefully the unity the fearlessness, the courage, the zeal for the Lord, when they see that mixture of things in us as a corporate body, they're going to go, huh, these people live in Athens in the year 2020. They don't, they're they're very kind, they're very joyful, but they, they don't remind me of my unbelieving friends. Something seems different. Their priorities seem different. I don't quite get what makes them tick. You know what I'm saying here? Again, I, I, I could name names here, but we, we have, we've had people who've come to know the Lord through our church, and you could tell the stories, and you know what happens? They, they, are, they get around you guys, and this has happened multiple times, and they say, my unbelieving friends don't have the same kind of genuine joy that I see apparent in what I see here and it makes them curious, and it makes them intrigued, and it makes them want to know more oftentimes, and that is a way that we get to witness to the world corporately living as citizens of heaven during our brief time on the earth. So, Paul is going to spend the rest of our text today unpacking what it means to be a gospel citizen of heaven on earth. Let's look here, continuing with verse 27 again. Only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are, and here's the list, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now, one commentator used animals to illustrate this passage, and I thought some of you would just enjoy this. So, here you go. You ready? If you've never been able to remember something from a sermon, here's your key. You ready for the four animals? Don't be, for the sake of this illustration, don't be wolves, turtles, chameleons, or pit bulls. I apologize to the dog lovers in the room, okay? Don't, don't be. So, don't be wolves, turtles, chameleons, or pit bulls. This comes from an actual scholarly man, okay? <laughs> Dennis Johnson's commentary. So, wh- what does this mean? Well, in the illustration, he says, okay, if, if the culture or if persecution is sort of coming at the church, some Christians react like a, like a cornered wolf, okay? And, and just this desire with no love in the heart, just out of kind of a fearful uh, adrenaline rush, they just want to lash out and bite back. They they just want to be hitting back as hard as possible with no grace, no gentleness ever at all, just biting back as hard as possible. And he says, we do not want to be wolves. A cornered wolf who's, who, who doesn't know what to do and strikes out in some kind of anger or some kind of vengeance. We don't want to be believers who are angrily, in a mean-spirited way, uh, fighting back. So that would be, he says here, to strive side by side. That would be bad striving because it would be striving to, to the point of sin. It would, be, it would be a sinful kind of offense. Number two, uh, we got the turtles. You know where I'm going with the turtle, don't you? The turtle's like, I'm out. Hands go in, legs go in, head goes in. I'm not even here. Just shh. I'm a rock, right? The turtle's gone. Where's the turtle? The turtle's gone. He said some believers say the thought of any kind of conflict over worldviews makes me so uncomfortable that I am going to just vaporize. I'm going to disappear. My hands and feet are gone. My head is gone. I'm a rock. Don't look at me, okay? So some Christians say striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, that does not sound like an enjoyable life at all. Striving just sounds in general not pleasant. So I don't want to be engaged in any kind of worldview issue. I don't want to ever do apologetics. I don't want to have to kind of defend the gospel or explain why I believe what I believe or ever get into even a friendly debate with someone who doesn't, doesn't agree. So, one temptation is to just hide away and be turtles, which this would be bad defense. He says we need to instead, in verse 27 in the middle, we need to stand firm in one spirit with one mind. Now, do you see the, the offense and defense here? Stand firm is defensive like, I'm not going to budge on the truth, but I'm going to be totally gracious to you, but I'm not going to budge on the truths of the gospel. I'm going to stand firm. You think 1 Corinthians 16, act like men, stand firm. That's a pretty intense, politically incorrect verse from the Bible right there, ladies and gentlemen. Act like men, stand firm. 1 Corinthians 16. And so Paul says, no, th- there is a kind of defensive posture offense, defense, you know me in sports, doesn't go well. Okay. So there is a kind of defensive posture where when people come to to criticize with grace and kindness, we do not budge on the truths of the Christian faith. It is not, by the way, it is not loving to change the Bible to please others. It feels loving to some degree, but it is a false pseudo love that harms and destroys people on the other side. So we, we are not going to edit the Bible to try to please the culture or to please others. We are going to stand firm in the truth. We're going to act like men. We're going to stand firm. We're not going to budge on that. And you'll see Paul mentioned that phrase throughout his letters. But also, we're going to strive side by side, which means we're not going to hide like turtles. And then what's the other one? Chameleons. Chameleons. Now, I know this is a bit of a misnomer, there's debate, because people say chameleons don't actually blend into their surroundings, but just ignore the facts, okay, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to just use the legendary picture of a chameleon, the the kind of, the way we think of it, okay, Uh, at least the way it's pictured and the way we think. A chameleon, you know, gets up against a green bush and suddenly it turns green, or it's against some brown tree bark and it sort of turns more brown, it just sort of blends into its surroundings, and uh, this is a little different from the turtle. The turtle just doesn't want to engage at all. The turtle just wants to disappear, okay? I've been there. I've felt that. But the other side, the chameleon just wants to do what? You know what? The chameleon doesn't want to just disengage. The chameleon wants to agree when the other side is saying something biblically untrue. And haven't we all felt the pressure? It just, in the company maybe you're at work, and there's 6 coworkers. Maybe it's a lunch break. I don't know where you might work. But let's say you're sitting around the table. It's a lunch break, and there's 6 coworkers and they're talking about a current hot-button issue. And it clearly, maybe it's about the sexual revolution or something, and you're going, oh, no, can someone change the subject? And, and it starts, and person A shares their view, and it's like, okay, that's, that's not right. And then B and C, and it goes around the table, and then they turn to you and say, hey, what, what, what do you think about X over here? And, and you go, uh, can I just turn into the color of the wall behind me? Can I, can I just disappear? And there's going to be a temptation to say, I think yeah, I think that's pretty yeah, I think that's pretty much what I think, right? I mean, j- just to straight up not say what Scripture says, to be a chameleon and to just look like the people you're around. So, I mean, to put it just really directly, when you are at work, you might look, sound, seem to think like your work friends who maybe are maybe not biblically thinking, maybe. And then when you're at church, you sound like your church friends. And uh, you know, there was kind of a joke growing up with youth group. Where this would be the case, you know, at school you're one way, at youth group, you're another way, at church you're this way, with your parents, you're this way. That's a chameleon. We we just sort of adapt to our environment. We we lick the finger, we we find out where the wind is blowing, and then we make the same emphasis and the same way of speaking that the people around us want to make. And, And Paul says, no, 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 no. We being loving does not equal agreeing with things people say that are not biblically accurate. We can we can be loving and gracious and still not agree with what is untrue. Paul says to speak the truth in, in love, right? To speak the truth in love. And the last one, the pit bulls. If you own pit bulls, I, I'm not mocking you right now, okay? But he, here's, here's the pit bulls. He says another thing that can happen when pressure comes from outside, persecution, things get... Interesting. One temptation is to turn on each other in the church. It's kind of like there's so much panic and anxiety about certain things that that it can be possible to start wanting to compete and to be hostile within the church. And like pit bulls that turn on each other and begin biting and devouring one another, uh, it can be divisive and and we can lose unity. And it appears that for the Philippians, the pit bull mentality was taking over. Because throughout this letter, Paul keeps saying Be unified, one mind, one spirit, strive side by side. And then at the end, he says, tell, uh, what is it, Euodia and Syntyche, these two women in the church, to agree in the Lord, because they have strived side by side with me, he says. So clearly, there was an element of disunity going on in the midst of the Philippians and their persecution. Let's look a little bit. I'm going to skip ahead. Look at chapter 2 to look at this unity factor. To one, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation, remember that's the word fellowship, in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, do you hear the emphasis on unity? And Now, no. what's the opposite of unity? How does disunity happen? It happens when I want to kind of quietly compete with you, I want to sort of do a one-upmanship game. Who's better at this? Who can do more of this than this other person? And and so I become selfishly ambitious. I want to put myself ahead. I want to put the spotlight on me. I want to put the focus on me. I want to sort of step in and steal the show in a sense. And he says, no, 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 no. Take your own personal interests. Put them on the back burner. That is, I mean, I'm saying this stuff like it's just easy. This This is the hardest stuff in life, is it not? To really do this? Okay, because this is church right now, right? So it's like, yeah, that's what you're supposed to say. But when you're in the car on the way home, you know, you know how hard it is to actually put other people's interests ahead of your own? I will tell you, it's actually impossible, apart from what is going to happen in this text, on your own to genuinely care more about another person's interests than your own is not just unusual. It's counterhuman. This is a supernatural kind of thing, and Paul's going to say, the only way we can grow in this, this humility, this others-centeredness, is not to grit your teeth and go, okay, I'm going to choose to just be a virtuous person. Okay, did it happen? You can try that. I don't think that's going to work. Paul, instead, he sandwiches these commands that are so impossible with gospel encouragement from both on both sides. So, So, look here verses 1 and 2. This is for unity. This is wonderful. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, do you hear that? Paul could have just said, be unified. What's wrong with you people? Why are you not, why not unified? He doesn't do that. What does he, what does he say? He says, you, you need to think for a second about what Jesus has done in your life. Has has the Lord Jesus provided you in your Christian life with any encouragement at all? Like hundreds of times. Have there been any moments where you felt the compassion and affection of, of God through the Spirit? How many times have we been weary, exhausted, Spiritually drained, right? The gas tank has it was empty a week ago, right? And we finally, okay, I gotta, I gotta go, I gotta be with the Lord. And we go open our Bible up, and we feel so unworthy and inadequate. And hey, we are. And we open Scripture and we say, Lord, please pour your Spirit out on me. Give me your truth. Encourage me. How many times suddenly there might be tears. I know not everyone has tears, but there might be tears. There might be your heart is stirred. Suddenly you feel like life is coming back in to your your soul and you're waking back up. And Paul says, think about all the encouragement that has been poured out on you through the fellowship of the Spirit, not just between you and Jesus, but also between you and other believers. How many times have you been discouraged and you get on the phone with another person in this room? or you go meet with someone, and by the time you leave, your mindset is different. The gospel is suddenly significant again. Your heart is moving again towards Jesus, and you leave. How many Sundays have I left feeling more encouraged than when I came? You're singing together, and you're reminding yourselves of these truths, and Paul says, let these things stir you and say, let's keep it going. Let's move towards unity and love. And I won't get much into next week's passage, but next week has that amazing text about Jesus in 5 through 11. And here's the point. Having a hard time serving, having a hard time putting another person's needs ahead of your own, take a long, hard look into the face of Jesus. He was in heaven, had everything he needed. He emptied himself, became a servant, obedient unto death, Death on a cross and now exalted at God's right hand for you. He bore your sin in his body on the tree so that you can die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. And Paul can say, listen, look at this good news. Stare at the face of Jesus until his attributes and characteristics, not his divine attributes, but his characteristics begin to come true in your life by the Spirit. All right, now I I want to focus in on a a major issue here. What happens when we live this way? Not perfectly, but when we strive to to live this way, unified, unafraid, what happens? Look at verse 28 of chapter 1. So, he says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. What happens when you're not afraid of your opponents who could kill you This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction and of your salvation and that from God. So I'm going to use a little illustration from high school basketball, not from my own personal experience, of which I have none, but uh, from my imagination of what high school basketball could have been like had I played. And I'm sure many of you may have played at some point. Uh, So, imagine you're at one of those away games where you drove who knows how many hours to get there. You know what I'm talking about. You get there, you're like, where where is this place? Who is this school? And, uh, you know, you walk into their gym and you maybe have never even been there before. And, you know, you're wearing your jersey and you go in there, and most of the people in the crowd are not rooting for you. Right? They're, they're, they're happy when you miss. You're like, oh, that's great. So you, you start the game off, and, and probably somewhere along the way, there's this idea that your coach may even say this when you're at a away game. Something about representing your school well. You ever heard that kind of talk? So here's the point. You're wearing the jersey of the home team, the team back. Oh, you're, you're the visiting team, but if you're back, back home. And you go into this other place, and you're there, and while you're playing, how you're playing does not reflect on the team who goes to school there. How you play has nothing to do with their reputation, their school system, nothing at all. How you play and how you conduct yourself as a player, you know, if you scream at the ref or if you throw a chair or something, you know, this is not going to reflect well on your school back where you came from. And just to give an illustration, I checked with Jerry about this. This is from a school that is from far away. That's all I know, okay? Not a local school. But th- this happened at Westminster where we teach. He has a Bible classroom at Westminster, and uh, <laughs> I wish I knew what school this was. But there was, it was a tournament, I think, so there, were, there was not enough locker rooms. So One of the locker rooms was Jerry's classroom okay, for one of the guy's teams. And uh, this, this school was in there, and I think they, had, they must have lost their game because they were not happy. Okay, and uh, one boy on the team, I have no idea who it was, took an ESV study Bible hardcover edition, that thing weighs 75 pounds, okay, Uh, ESV hardcover, full large, not large print, like the normal print size, the big one, he took it and threw it as hard as he could across Jerry's room and it hit the wall and tore a giant gaping hole, the exact size of an ESV study Bible in the wall of the Bible classroom. Okay, that's a true story. I've seen the gaping hole. I think it's been fixed since then, but there was a huge hole. I actually held a study Bible, but it fit like a puzzle piece. I was like, okay, that's a true story. Uh, So here's the point if I knew what school system that was, even if that one kid was just sort of like a bad egg, like maybe he did not accurately represent his team or his coaches and his whole system, but I'll tell you what, when we found out about it, do you think that reflected well or poorly upon the the school system where they're from? It reflected poorly. How could it not? And so do you see the idea? How we act, we're we're, we're not home, right? Heaven is our home. We're wearing the jersey, right? We've, We've got Jesus right here. We're naming the name of Jesus. And how we as a local church As a team, work together in unity is telling the outside world what kind of Savior we have. Even if we can lie about Jesus by how we act, if we throw the Bible through the wall, we're saying something untrue about where we're from, you see? And so uh, we we need to think through carefully uh, about the way we represent God to others. Now, if we don't throw the Bible through the wall, if we are unified, humble, fearless, striving for the gospel, and standing in our convictions all at the same time as a body, as a corporate body? Paul says, we turn a sign on. Now, I'm going I'm to mixed metaphors. You remember later Paul says, shine as lights in the world? It's the same idea. Same idea as the sign. Okay, so imagine you're driving down the highway at night, and there's a billboard, but the billboard has no lights working. Okay, now let's say written on the billboard is the gospel truth. Fine. You can't read it until the lights turn on. And the lights light up the sign, and the sign is not an end in itself. It's pointing to something beyond itself. Okay? Now, using this metaphor, when we do what Paul says, we live together as citizens representing our home in heaven, not with the priorities of earth. When the world sees that, we are like lights shining in the darkness. And we, we become bright signs, and what's written on the sign, and this is both sounding, it's going to sound harsh and wonderful, because it's, I think mean, it is both, it's going to say this. Look, look at verse 28 one more time. When you're not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign, think a lit up billboard, to them, the enemies, of their future destruction, if they don't repent, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So, so f- follow me for a moment here. God gives you two gifts in verse 29. One gift sounds great. It's the gift of faith. Like, thank you, Lord. God gives you, if you're a believer, it's because God gave you the gift, the gracious gift of faith. But there's another gift that God gives and it doesn't sound like a gift. By the way, the word give here is the word to give as a gracious gift. The root word is grace. What's a grace gift? Faith. Amen. What's the other grace gift? Suffering. And you say, wait, wait how does this work? Here's the idea. God gave the Philippians faith to be a believer and faith to continue as a believer and faith to stand firm in the midst of opposition. And God gave them opposition. He gave them suffering. Suffering. And when those two gifts are given to us as a church, and I don't wish suffering on us. I'm not not saying we should seek it out, but it will find us out eventually, right, as we live for Christ. When, When we are living in faith that's a gift from God, and we receive suffering or opposition that's also a gift from God. When those two things collide in our life, and we are able to stand firm in the gospel, unshaken by the worst kind of opposition, the sign lights up. You're hoping in something I don't understand. We're about to kill you, Paul, and you're happy about it. What's wrong with you? You must be hoping in something I don't have access to right now. You must have joy in something, stability in something, identity in something I don't yet know about. And so what it's doing is it's showing the opponent, my God that I'm relying on, my false God, is not going to save me. I'm headed for destruction. And that sign is also telling me you must be relying on the true God and you're headed towards salvation. And I'm going to come to a, a, a close here, but turn to chapter 3 because I want to see this full text, this, parag- this couple paragraphs. As you turn to chapter 3, I want you to know there's multiple rare Greek words that Paul uses in these two sections like bookends, and you'll hear some of them, but look with me to see if what I'm saying is is being expounded on. So verse 17 of chapter 3. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, same word from the first chapter. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself." Now, you're still with me here. Follow this. So, Paul's saying, your enemies, their God is worldly pleasure, ultimately. Their God is their belly, their appetites, what, what they can get out of this world. Their mind is set on earthly things. And so, if they experience suffering, it threatens their God. Do you see how the anxiety just skyrockets when your God is threatened? If you're living for pleasure and you face death, you face the enemy of your God. You could lose your God. That's terrifying. And that's the way virtually all people have lived who don't know resurrection truth in Jesus. And Paul says, when you are different, when you're not serving your appetites, but you're serving Jesus, who after you die will give you a resurrection body and you actually hope and live that as if that is true, your enemies will look at you and say, you're hoping in something I don't understand. And the, the, the billboard lights up and says, uh-oh, that means I as an enemy of Jesus With my God as my appetites, I'm headed for destruction, but they are heading towards salvation because they have a God who actually answers the hardest questions in life. So, So, to bring this to a conclusion, when we live together as citizens of heaven during our brief time on earth, when we do this with unified, fearless joy and humility, when we do that, we become a billboard as a church that lights up and tells the world Jesus is the true Savior. He provides resurrection for those who turn and trust Him, and forgiveness of sins from His death on the cross, and those who oppose Him will ultimately face eternal destruction outside of His joyous presence. So let's take a moment, I'll just give you a few seconds of silence, you can pray to the Lord if there's anything that's come to your mind that you would like to talk to Him about, confess, and then I'll, I'll pray for us and then we'll sing together. Heavenly Father, we do not deserve our citizenship to be in heaven. Living a life worthy of this gospel does not mean that we earn it, which is impossible, but that we live like it's true, that we live like we are sinners saved by grace, that we live like we were once headed for destruction, children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but that you in your mercy intervened that Your grace transformed us, that You gave us the gift of faith. And no doubt we will face the gift of suffering. And Lord, when the, when the gift of suffering comes, whether it be cancer, opposition, martyrdom, or something much smaller by comparison, Lord, help us in the midst of tears and the hardship and the grief of those things, help us to be so rooted in the truth of resurrection and of the power of Jesus that we could have a genuine peace that surpasses understanding and a hope that cannot be explained by the gods of this world so that those watching will see the billboard ignite and that they'll see they're headed for destruction and that they need the Lord Jesus and his eternal salvation and that many through this church, through our church, Lord, that many would come to know you through our corporate example. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.